This is WMNF Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's first foreign trip, which is already being praised as America is back, and discuss the contrast between Biden's progressive domestic agenda and his conservative foreign policy, since Biden has surrounded himself with establishment figures who played a central role in the disastrous interventionist policies in the Middle East. Asla Bali, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law, joins us to discuss her article at the New Republic, Biden's Foreign Policy Doctrine is Stuck in the 20th Century, The president's domestic agenda is surprisingly ambitious and progressive, so why is he proposing conventional, outdated solutions to the world's crises? We'll discuss how Biden and the Democratic leadership, while a welcome change from Trump, show little interest in rethinking, let alone fundamentally altering, foreign policy assumptions. Then we'll go to Managua, Nicaragua, to speak with Mateo Hakin, a professor of history at Chapman University who studies 20th century revolutions in the so-called Third World and is currently doing research on Nicaragua's Sandinista Revolution. He joins us to discuss the increasingly despotic regime of Daniel Ortega, whose violent crackdown on street protests in 2018 left over 300 dead and how now Ortega has crossed the line by arresting all of the opposition candidates who plan to run against him in the November elections. Then finally, with President Biden meeting today with the UK's Prime Minister, we will look into the problems caused by Brexit, which Boris Johnson championed, now impacting Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which Biden is concerned about because they threaten the Good, Pri- the Good Friday peace accords. Joining us for an assessment of the meeting between the two leaders who reaffirmed the special relationship with a new Atlantic Charter is James Cronin, a professor of history at Boston College and the chair of the British Study Group at Harvard University, whose latest book is Global Rules, America, Britain and the Disordered World. And joining us now is Asla Bali, professor of law and faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law where she teaches courses on public international law, international human rights, and the laws of war. She's the co-author of an article at the New Republic, Biden's foreign policy doctrine is stuck in the 20th century. The president's domestic agenda is surprisingly ambitious and progressive. So why is he proposing conventional, outdated solutions to the world's crises? Welcome to Background Briefing, Asla Bali. Thanks so much. So before we get into your article at the New Republic, let me ask you about what you expect will happen after the meeting with Boris Johnson and the G7 leaders in Cornwall. Biden is going to the NATO summit where he's apparently going to have a meeting with Turkish President Erdogan on the side. Erdogan's been in a little political hot water from the mafia boss has been leaking videos or publishing videos that have damaged the regime because it exposes top people in Erdogan's regime 
close ties to organized crime and drug trafficking. So what do you think is going to happen in that meeting? I, the expectation is that it's, it's going to be pretty testy. Um, well, Joe Biden and Recep Tayyip Erdogan know one another relatively well. Obviously, Joe Biden is an old foreign policy hand in the U.S., and he met Erdogan several times while he was vice president and prior, prior to that as well. Uh, and I think that um, while the relationship between the two men is never going to be cordial and certainly won't approximate what... Uh, apparently was real warmth that Donald Trump seemed to exhibit towards uh, Erdogan. At the same time, Testi is probably also strong. I don't expect very much to come out of this meeting. There has been on the U.S. side a recognition of the Armenian genocide, as you know, um, and that will be an issue uh, amongst others that the Turkish uh, president is likely to pursue with Joe Biden to no effect. And on the flip side, the uh, Biden administration is likely to press uh, President Erdogan on a whole range of issues, probably less related to the revelations by the mafioso that are um, have transfixed Turkish audiences and more related to uh, Russian defense systems, presence in Syria, generally speaking, the posture of uh, Turkey uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. Those are all you know, issues that undoubtedly will at least be touched upon, but I can't imagine there'll be either resolution or forward progress on any of these sources of tension in the U.S.-Turkish bilateral relationship. So have these revelations, though, really damaged Erdogan? I got the impression that maybe they were damaging him and undermining his ability to continue his kind of dictatorial type of reign. I mean, it's very hard to say. Certainly they've been viewed, you know, I think at this point maybe more than 90 million times. So far there have been nine videos. Um, and for your audience who may not know, this mafioso who fled Turkey in 2020 is based now in the United Arab Emirates and is dropping basically an hour and a half long video roughly each week on Sunday. And Turkish audiences uh, are absolutely transfixed by this. Everybody turns to YouTube in the morning on Sundays to see the most recent installment. He is extremely theatrical. He uses conventional reality television techniques to keep his audience engaged with spoilers and little bits and alerts and name dropping um, throughout these videos of, as you say, senior individuals from the business community, from the political elite that he is implicating in uh, criminal activities. But this is far from the first time that the Turkish state has been implicated in relations with mafia figures and underworld figures and paramilitary organizations, not just under the AKP, including back to the 1990s. And each time one of these scandals erupts, um, one would expect it to be a political earthquake. But um, the elites in power find ways to sweep things under the carpet, purge individuals that might seek accountability. And Erdogan, more than really any government in recent memory, has consolidated power to such an extent in his personal um, hands and in his office that the ability of anyone to act on what is undoubtedly, you know, widespread discontent with uh, his government, not only over these revelations, but more importantly, over its handling of the pandemic and over the ongoing economic crisis in Turkey, uh, all of that has undoubtedly strengthened the hand of the opposition, but the likelihood that we will um, be able to translate that into early elections or another mechanism to dislodge Erdogan in the near term is low. So in that case, what we're faced with is the next set of elections, which will be in 2023, and that's a long time away. So while I don't doubt that these revelations are deeply damaging, exactly how he'll respond and what will happen between now and 2023 remains, I think, an open question.
And I'm speaking with Asla Bali, who's a professor of law and faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law, where she teaches courses on public international law, international human rights and the laws of war. And she is the co-author of an article at the New Republic, Biden's foreign policy doctrine is stuck in the 20th century. The president's domestic agenda is surprisingly ambitious and progressive. So why is he proposing conventional, outdated solutions to the world's crises? So let's talk about the article, Asla. And the premise is that there's a lot of celebrating going on at the G7 in Cornwall, that America is back and all of that sort of agony of the Trump era is over with obviously Trump practiced the opposite of what geopolitical strategy should be which is to unite your allies and divide your enemies Trump did the opposite and Biden of course is now saying that he's going to turn things around but you're saying that this idea of this breath of fresh air actually exacerbates the crises that Biden now imagines he can resolve by simply going back to the well so explain further if you will Sure. So first of all, this America is back framing is one that is by now familiar globally. Uh, if you might recall, um, prior to, as you put it, the agonies of the Trump administration, there were the agonies of the Bush administration. And uh, at the time that President Obama was elected, we had very much the same story, a breath of fresh air, a reset, frayed alliances. Um, famously, the Bush administration had talked about old Europe versus, you know, new Europe and um, had really doubled down on relationships with Eastern European countries when several traditional Western European countries were less inclined to support, um, for example, the war in Iraq. So you had a period of testing relations, you had the Obama administration come in, promise a, you know, rules-based international order, an American commitment to multilateralism, eight years of that, and then the pendulum swung back again to Trump. So now that you have a good, you know, two decades of experiencing this back-and-forth pendulum swing, the ability of President Biden to sell his America's Back message is itself going to be somewhat compromised, obviously. Um, but from our perspective in writing the article, our points were the kinds of indicators that America is back suggest that all that America is back to is a reset to the sort of sustained approach of the Obama administration, which itself was simply an echo of the approach of the Clinton administration. So a commitment to multilateralism is really another way of describing, and indeed this is very clear in the coverage and in Biden's own statements, um, a way of developing a common front in order to secure America's role in a set of great power rivalries on the one hand, and then a kind of realistic reassessment of America's overreach in its posture over the last two decades around the world with, you know, as we describe it, an archipelago of military bases um, that cross all continents, is an Afghanistan withdrawal. Well, the Afghan withdrawal, as we try to make clear in the piece, is again something that simply is a reflection of a bipartisan view that the United States made a mistake in overinvesting in that conflict and should draw down forces there, but only in order to be better prepared and shore them up against other kinds of rivalries, whether they be uh, small power confrontations with Iran, North Korea, or others, or the sort of bigger picture um, confrontational posture towards China and Russia. And we see, 
you know, all of this sort of playing out at the moment, as you say, in Cornwall with a G7 that is being presented by Biden as an opportunity, again, very much echoing your earlier framing, to unite allies specifically in order to develop a common front to confront uh, Russia and China on a whole range of issues. And um, even prior to this meeting, you've seen the Biden administration engage uh, on the question of Taiwan, engage in deployments in the South China Sea. So it's very clear, um, and now we are expecting, in addition to the meeting with Erdogan that you asked me about at the beginning of this conversation, uh, of course, a meeting with Putin. And all of this is being presented and framed as part of an administration approach to multilateralism for the purpose of securing the role of the United States as the indispensable nation in a newly configured set of great power rivalries. And we want to argue in this piece that this is the wrong approach and that we can see this very clearly in the ways in which the Biden administration responded to the most recent conflict in Israel-Palestine as just one example of returning to the well and offering neither new thinking nor a path forward for the, the 21st century challenges that that confront the United States on the foreign policy side, let alone a progressive approach. So one of the points we try to make in the article is, in addition to being celebrated for his sort of America is back branding, uh, the Biden administration has been welcomed and embraced for its domestic tack uh, left. Um, so the ways in which it has been responsive to progressive calls domestically in the United States, whether in terms of you know, the sort of build back better framing um, that promises a return to a meaningful role of government in managing the economy, the introduction of the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion of economic stimulus, the current infrastructure bill that's being debated, uh, progressive cabinet picks from Javier Becerra to Deb Holland to Catherine Tai to Marty Walsh. Uh, you know, there's a whole range of ways in which the Biden administration does re represent a break from what we saw with the Obama administration precisely because there is a shared analysis on the Democratic side of the aisle about the failings and the shortcomings of Obama's vision on the domestic front, and particularly the failure to properly respond to the financial crisis of 2008, which paved the way for so much of what has been you know, so deeply troubling in this country, um, and the polarization, and the failure to address structural racism. So all of this has been taken on board with the Biden administration, and what we're saying is what we see on the domestic side, this kind of progressive tacking left, has no analog at the foreign policy level, but should do, should have an analog. We do need a progressive foreign policy, and we need it precisely because of the ways in which the Obama approach internationally was just as, you know, sort of constricted, limited, and ultimately failed as it was domestically. Well, given that there is that contrast, as you pointed out, Asla, between his tack to the left on domestic issues and his sticking with establishment figures and centrists in terms of foreign policy, is that something there that's sort of baked into the Washington establishment. I mean, the fact that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, during the Bush administration, he served as the Democratic Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he oversaw the congressional endorsement of the Iraq War. And that, of course, was disastrous in many ways for those that did it, but they represent the Democrats, the prominent Democratic senators who supported that war with that ridiculous... NIO that the Bush administration cooked up to justify it. John Kerry, uh, Hillary Clinton, most of the candidates that ran 
they could never shake the uh, the albatross of Iraq from them. I mean, at the time of that NIO, I talked with the the Democratic chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Graham of Florida, and he said we knew that it was a bogus claim that the Bush is putting out for that war, but nevertheless, you know, Diane Feinstein and all these establishment Democrats all voted for that ridiculous war and uh, regretted it ever since. So that seems to be the impulse there amongst centrist Democrats, that they've got to be just as conservative on foreign policy as their Republican colleagues. How do you see it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things we point to in the piece is that there is a sort of centrist beltway establishment that is remarkably bipartisan. So unlike the kind of polarization we see on domestic policy, there's a kind of settled consensus. And we saw that in the most recent bill that was basically framed as uh, an investment in, in becoming more competitive against China. All of a sudden, Republicans are willing to spend money on um you know, internal investment in the computing sector and information technologies, et cetera, when it's presented as part of a confrontational posture towards China. So I think it's undoubtedly correct that there is a beltway sort of centrist establishment and that it is indeed bipartisan. And what we're arguing is, first of all, that that the composition of sort of think tank commentariat and the staffers that are going in and out of positions in various administrations, all of that needs to be shaken up in the same way that we've seen a shakeup on staffing for the Democratic Party and for the Biden administration on the domestic side, that there are very interesting thinkers, um, people who are making arguments for a different way of thinking about a more restrained foreign policy or more progressive foreign policy that need to get included in the conversation in order for us to break through the kind of groupthink that explains the nonstop recommitment to essentially military solutions for non-military problems. Um, and this is uh, you know, particularly apparent in, in regions of the world where the United States has not varied from its approach since the early 90s. As we say again, a 20th century approach in the Middle East is perhaps the most central example of this, where we have a set of commitments made in the early 90s around the conception, conceptualization of Oslo and the framing of Iran as an actor that needed to be contained and managed, a redoubling of commitments to Gulf Arab states. That just has been an unbroken story since then. 9-11 didn't shake it up. Nothing shook it up. Uh, you know, the centrality of Saudi Arabia throughout the war on terror, all of these factors, I think, are well overdue um, for rethinking. But we simply don't see any indication of that happening, whether it's uh, indeed even continuities from the Trump administration's approach that we can now see in the Biden administration. No change on the uh, move, moving of the embassy, uh, the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. No revisiting of arms deals that have been concluded by the Trump administration with Gulf um, you know, Arab countries. All of this speaks to exactly the kind of establishment sort of entrenchment in a particular posture that we think is very problematic, deeply flawed, and is pressing the United States to continue down a failed path in its foreign policy. And just in closing, uh, Matthew Rajansky was supposed to be on the National Security Council as a Russia expert, and they pulled the plug on him because they thought he was too soft on Putin. I mean, that was pretty unpleasant, frankly. 
Yeah, and they were barely able to get Rob Malley in place to manage just what is merely a reset. Again, it's just a return to Obama-era position on the JCPOA and the Iran nuclear deal. Even that faced enormous amounts of resistance. Um, Rob Malley was nonetheless able to take that position, and it has not, you know, we'll see maybe by the end of this month or later this summer whether it yields at least a return to, you know, the starting point uh, where we were six or seven years ago with Iran, which is still containment, which is still rivalry, which is still confrontational, but at least, um, you know, is a manageable path forward with respect to the nuclear file. But yeah, all of this, I mean, the attempt to try to bring in alternative voices continues to be clamped down against in ways that I think progressives in this country really need to pay attention to uh, because the connections between the domestic policy goals that folks want to advance and the ongoing military commitments abroad, ongoing sort of policing framing abroad, all of that, um, you know, has to be surfaced. There's just not really a a long-term strategy for uh, addressing challenges at home that doesn't also require addressing this kind of long-standing commitment to a military posture abroad. Well, Ashla Bali, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And I've been speaking with Ashla Bali, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law, where she teaches courses in public international law, international human rights and the laws of war. She's the co-author of an article at the New Republic, Biden's foreign policy doctrine is stuck in the 20th century. The president's domestic agenda is surprisingly ambitious and progressive. Why is he proposing conventional, outdated solutions to the world's crises? We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Managua, Nicaragua, to look into how the increasingly despotic regime of Daniel Ortega has crossed the line by Ortega arresting all of the opposition candidates who plan to run against him in the November elections. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Nicaragua is Mateo Joaquin, who is a professor of history at Chapman University, who studies how 20th century revolutions in the so-called third world have framed global debates about development democratization and international relations. His current research examines the Nicaragua Sandinista revolution from 1979 to 1990 through a transnational lens, and his writing has appeared in Axios, Politica, Exterior, and the New York Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mateo Joaquin. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and you're in Managua, where a rash of arrests have been taking place, where essentially all of 
the opposition figures that would be running to oppose the government of Daniel Ortega in the November elections are now in jail. I mean, five prominent opposition figures have been arrested in two days. That's right. And what's kind of puzzling or difficult to digest is that we were already living under a sort of a de facto uh, state of exception here in Nicaragua following a violent crackdown of massive street protests in 2018. And yet this week's events, which you just described, still feel like uh, a line was crossed, like the Ortega regime is uh, taking things to another level. Another level being that they don't even want to pretend to have any democratic trappings. Indeed. Uh, the government had made clear through uh, police and uh, paramilitary violence that no form of street protest would be tolerated. But by arresting all of the opposition presidential candidates and indeed a few prominent members of civil society and the business sector, the government ahead of elections scheduled for November is sending the message that it is also forbidden really to express dissent, uh, call for democratic reforms, even through the media or institutional channels. And of course, the 2018 protests that you mentioned, Matteo, 300 people died. Yes, at least 300 people killed, many more injured, hundreds arbitrarily detained, and thousands displaced. It's really an episode, the likes of which we haven't seen really in Latin America over the past three decades, uh, such that the inter-American Commission on Human Rights even suggested that crimes against humanity uh, had taken place in the context of that violence. So why is it then that there's not a lot of focus on Nicaragua? You know, the Vice President Harris was just down in Guatemala trying to figure out how to deal with the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala to stop emigration from those countries to the Mexico-U.S. border, she's got or got into a lot of trouble for telling Guatemalans, don't come, you know. But no such exodus seems to be coming from Nicaragua. So is that true? That I mean, is that why the U.S. is not sort of focusing on it, and by extension the American press, because we don't have a refugee problem from Nicaragua? That's it in a nutshell, Ian. Uh, as you just sort of implied and as the uh, words of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris suggested this week, the United States' main focus in Central America is managing northbound migratory flows. Um, anything else, such as uh, institutions and human rights, it might be related to that, but it's always going to play a secondary role. And the reality is that even though the situation in Nicaragua from the perspective of basic rights has been very alarming for a long time now, Nicaragua does not send many migrants to the United States. Uh, Nicaraguans uh, make up less than 1% roughly of the uh, Hispanic population in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that Nicaragua doesn't 
uh, create migrants. In fact, uh, many Nicaraguans leave the country every year. Uh, it's just that they follow a different American dream, and it is in neighboring Costa Rica, where at least 10% of the population is made up of Nicaraguans. So what happens with these refugees or these exiles next door? Are they building, I mean, going back to the Sandinista revolution, that's where a lot of the Contras were. And, of course, there was an attempt to kill Ed and Pastora right there on the border, I recall. So is that where the opposition now, those that haven't been arrested, are in exile? A lot of uh, prominent civil society figures, members of the independent media, went into exile uh, in 2018, but since have returned to the country, you know, under the expectation that the government is going to, uh, you know, maybe loosen uh, some restrictions. Uh, clearly, that's not the case. Uh, the reality is that there isn't a particularly organized opposition movement, whether it's inside Nicaragua or outside of it. And uh, if we're going to make comparisons back to the period of the Sandinista Revolution and the Contras in the Civil War, we just have to understand that the context is so very different now. Back then, that was the Cold War, when the superpowers and transnational revolutionary movements would intervene in local disputes, even in small, remote countries like Nicaragua, because at stake was the broader uh, contest between socialism and capitalism, East and West. Uh, today, we just don't have the conditions for that sort of uh, armed uh, conflict in Nicaragua. And again, I'm speaking with Mateo Hakin, who is a professor of history at Chapman University, who studies the 20th century revolutions in so-called third world countries that have framed global debates about development, democratization, and international relations. His current research examines Nicaragua's Sandinista revolution from 1979 to 1990 through a transnational lens, and his writing has appeared in Axios, Politica, Exterior, and the New York Times, and he's joining us from Managua in Nicaragua. So what is the local reaction to the U.S. blacklisting some of the cronies of Ortega, in particular his own daughter, Camila Ortega Murillo? Is she the daughter, by the way, Mateo, that was allegedly molested by her father, Daniel Ortega? Uh, no, you're, you're referring to uh, Soy la América Ortega, who was actually um, Daniel Ortega's stepdaughter. And she, in the late 1990s, uh, accused her stepfather of having continuously abused her sexually throughout, throughout her childhood and adolescence. And her own mother, Rosario Murillo, who is now uh, vice president, stood steadfastly by Daniel Ortega on that um, occasion. Uh, but uh, to your question uh, about how Nicaraguans are reacting to... Uh, sanctions and how they've been reacting to sanctions. Uh, it's very sort of a variegated response. Of course, uh, anti-Ortega um, communities, uh, you know, receive the sanctions very warmly uh, and sometimes even go as far as uh, demanding or inviting sanctions 
from the international community. The government and its sympathizers see that as a form of treason. Uh, and in fact, some of the opposition figures who have been arrested were actually formally indicted uh, with violating national sovereignty um, as a result of their alleged uh, actions trying to coordinate um, international sanctions against Nicaragua. And then finally, and I think this is something we can say about the political situation in general, there are many Nicaraguans, uh, perhaps even most, that aren't really paying that much attention to the political situation anymore. Uh, either they're disillusioned or they're just focused on uh, survival, which is perhaps understandable uh, in a country uh, of such great poverty and inequality. So it seems, though, that Ortega is following Putin's playbook. You see, I don't know whether he's a Stalinist or what, how you describe him. As, he sa as you mentioned earlier, Matteo, framed the Sandinista revolution was during the Cold War where he was considered a communist menace. Now, I, I don't know exactly how you'd describe his politics, if he has any at all. I think he's mostly about power. But it does seem that he's borrowing from Putin's playbook, particularly by um, bringing up these phony charges against journalists saying that they're laundering money. I mean, journalists don't get paid that much money. I can't imagine why they could be laundering money on the side, but it doesn't matter, does it? These are trumped-up charges, but if, you, if you're a journalist getting charged with money laundering, you're in trouble. Uh, that's right. And, um, well, as for the Ortega government's uh, politics, uh, indeed, your, your listeners will recall that the Sandinista Front in the 1970s and 1980s was uh, a left-wing uh, revolutionary movement that sought control uh, for the purpose of uh, redistributing wealth. And they had a socially progressive agenda and they sought to deny outside influence. And Daniel Ortega is certainly interested still in denying uh, influence from the United States, but in every other way, uh, his, um, his political project represents a, a pretty stunning uh, rejection of the original program and ideology of the Sandinista revolution, because as part of his bid to return to power back in 2006, he actually converted the Sandinista front, uh, which his family now uh, hegemonizes, into a business-friendly Christian conservative party uh, and then in, in order to consolidate his authoritarian project, he built these very surprising tacit alliances with his former counter-revolutionary foes in the church and uh, capitalist class. So this isn't uh, a thing about uh, left and right anymore. It's about power, as you mentioned. And in terms of what playbook he's following, uh, yes, there are some very specific parallels that we can draw to legislation that has been passed in Russia that can be used to sort of formally criminalize dissent and independent media. But I think that the broader context actually is, is more local and regional, and it has to do with the general erosion of democracy in Latin America and in Central America specifically. Something you'll note is that None of the so-called Northern Triangle governments 
said anything about what took place in Nicaragua uh, over the past several days. And that is because those governments have very shared uh, interests with the government of Daniel Ortega, and they share with the Ortega regime a sort of uh, worldview and attitude um, about uh, what the independent press and uh, civil society do. Uh, all of these governments see civil society groups, activists, journalists as opposition actors that represent a threat. And so any financing from the international community uh, for, you know, promoting free press or democracy or civil society is seen as external intervention to undermine their power. So for Nayib Bukele in El Salvador or Juan Orlando Hernandez, and for them to condemn Daniel Ortega would be to condemn themselves. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Mateo, uh, is, is that project that was the Chinese were going to finance to have an alternative to the Panama Canal going through Lake Nicaragua, which would be a ecological catastrophe from what I understand, is that dead in the water? Uh, yes, it's dead. Nothing ever really ever started with that project. Few people looking at the issue carefully ever took it seriously. Uh, but unfortunately, in Nicaragua, historically, the dream of having an interoceanic canal that could take advantage of the country's geographic position to create wealth and take the Nicaraguan people to the promised land. In fact, these are uh, sort of uh, biblical references that Ortega and his wife made when selling the project. This dream is very powerful. And even uh, people who didn't support the Ortega government supported uh, this, this canal project, which by all accounts was uh, just some sort of a political, what, what would you call it, a political... Uh, smoke and mirrors show. Yeah. So just in closing, American leftists who supported the Sandinista regime back in the 80s, in the early 80s, are they being silent on the repression underway in Nicaragua by Ortega? Well, I think the, the meaningful voices in the U.S. left, such as Senator Bernie Sanders, have been unequivocal uh, in pointing out the authoritarian nature of the Ortega regime. So perhaps there are some, you know, fringe groups that still have a nostalgic connection to the 1980s. But uh, really, in, in Western Europe, in the United States, in Latin America, there are very, very few people on the left who are willing to openly defend Daniel Ortega. And that's because, as we said before, his project hasn't been about continuing the project of the Sandinista revolution. It's been a project about power. And in the anti-Ortega sphere, there aren't just, you know, people who uh, supported the Contras back in the 1980s, but there are many, many former Sandinistas who actually see the Ortega family as uh, usurpers and sort of traitors to the original cause. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, uh, Matea. Akin from uh, Managua, Nicaragua. I appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to chat.
And again, I've been speaking with Matteo Hakin, who is a professor of history at Chapman University, who studies the 20th century revolutions in the so-called third world that have framed global debates about development, democratization, and international relations. His current research examines Nicaragua's Sandinista revolution from 1979 to 1990 through a transnational lens, and his writing has appeared in Axios, Politica Exterior, and the New York Times, and he joined us from Managua, Nicaragua. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the meeting today between President Biden and Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who reaffirmed the special relationship with a new Atlantic Charter. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Cronin, a professor of history at Boston College and an associate at the Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He serves on the editorial boards of 20th Century British History and Contemporary British History, and he's the author of Labour and Society in Modern Britain, New Labour's Pasts, What's Left of the Left, and his latest book, Global Rules, America, Britain, and the Disordered World. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Cronin. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, and there was an expectation that there'd be some contention between Boris Johnson and President Biden today in their meetings over how Brexit, of course, which Boris Johnson championed and is heavily identified with, how it's affected the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And it looks as though, at least from what Boris Johnson's saying, that the US and the UK are in complete harmony about the need to uphold the Good Friday Agreement. So do you know what they agreed to, uh, James? Well, it's not clear what they agreed to, honestly. I think that uh, rhetorically, it's in the interest of uh, Johnson and Biden to say that they are in agreement on everything. But um, just a couple of days ago, um, actually, I think it was June 3rd, the, uh, a U.S. representative uh, talked to her counterpart in the foreign office, and uh, actually, I think it was the Brexit minister, Frost, um, and, you know, essentially rebuked Britain for inflaming tensions uh, because of Northern Ireland and being recalcitrant about agreeing with the Europeans about, you know, how to implement the Northern Ireland protocol. So I think that the, the sharp message about which they probably don't all agree was already delivered a week ago, uh, which meant that they could today say they were in agreement on everything. But, uh, but in the background, this issue of what uh, Britain will do vis-a-vis -vis Northern Ireland and really implementing Brexit uh, remains a tough one. And 
What's interesting, of course, is that uh, Biden was able to give an American a U.S. message a week ago, um, but uh, yesterday and tonight, um, Macron will be in um, in Cornwall to make similar points, and uh, the Europeans are, you know, even more concerned to make sure that. Uh, Johnson agrees with what had been agreed upon last December in terms of Northern Ireland. So the issue is clearly there. They've decided to bury it for the moment. And in addition to burying that, they went on to, uh, you know, propose or sign or agree to this uh, updated Atlantic Charter, which is, you know, rather a big deal theoretically, although it's probably mostly at this point just symbolism. But it's, it's, it's not really trivial. Well, the original Atlantic Charter certainly wasn't trivial. It came it out in wasn't. 1941 in the, at the beginning of the U.S. involvement in uh, World War II, and uh, it was signed, of course, by FDR and uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, so <laughs> that's a pretty tough act to follow, isn't it? It's very tough. Uh, I mean, it's obviously a you know, rhetorical device that they're using to... Restate the uh, alliance between Britain and the U.S. Also, to restate the principles that uh, the the U.S. is trying to uh, reestablish as part of its foreign policy. Uh, that is the need for alliances, uh, and the need for those alliances, uh, the big alliances that the United States is part of, um, to be based on principles of democracy, and uh, that. That's really the issue today, that democracy seems threatened in all sorts of places and all sorts of ways. Well, the new document reads in part, We remain united behind the principles of sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the peaceful resolution of disputes. We oppose interference through disinformation and other malign influences, including in elections, and reaffirm our commitment to debt transparency, sustainability and sound governance of debt relief. So too will we defend key principles such as freedom of navigation and overflight and other internationally lawful uses of the seas. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of, I suppose, calling it boilerplate might be a little insulting, (laughs) but it's not exactly earth-shattering, is it? It's not, although mentioning interference in elections and law enforcement and so on, you know, is somewhat pointed. It's clearly pointed at at, um, at Russia and Putin uh, and what's uh, going on between, you know, um, Russia and other countries now. Uh, so um, it, it's a it's in line with the fairly strong. Uh, formal position taken by Biden and his administration in, um, you know, setting setting a reasonably strong and critical message to um, to Putin and Russia. So, uh, yes, it, it is mostly boilerplate and does echo very strongly, as you know, as well as I know, the um, phrasing of the original Atlantic Charter. But um, adding those bits about uh, elections and so on, you know, that, that that has an edge to it. Sure. 
And again, I'm speaking with James Cronin, a professor of history at Boston College and associate of the Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He also serves on the editorial boards of the 20th Century British History and Contemporary British History. And he's the author of Labour and Society in Modern Britain, New Labour's Pasts, What's Left of the Left. And his latest book is Global Rules, America, Britain and the Disordered World. But, you know, what? <laughs> I find it a little bit... <laughs> ironic though i mean when you consider brexit which i i think was like a self-inflicted wound it just went on forever yes and it finally got resolved uh, but even now it's still not completely resolved as you pointed out you know mm-hmm. we may hear some different stuff from macron tomorrow but for example the biggest donor to brexit was a guy called uh-huh. banks a so-called insurance character it turns out that he he was married to a FSB agent who was kicked out of the Emirates for prostitution mm-hmm. and through her, Katja Padrina, nine million pounds was invested into Brexit, the largest donation into Brexit because we, we couldn't talk by about Russians. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. it was Russian money <laughs> uh, via this so called insurance magnate. And because we couldn't even have this discussion in the UK because of uh, their libel laws. Yeah. which is what America's founding fathers rebelled against. But nevertheless, you know, I'm sure Biden had to sort of bite his tongue with Johnson because Johnson's kind of a relic of the Trump era, isn't he? He's like Britain's version of Trump. Well, he is. The question is, is he just that, or is he capable of transforming himself and being more flexible? I mean, he's a much more malleable character in a way than Trump, Uh he was, after all, the mayor of London, and in that role, um, was took actions that pleased um, a lot of progressives. And he was happy in the role of mayor of London, which is a, a, a multicultural capital. Well, those are those are acts, if they're acts, or those are actions, if, if they're meaningful. Um, but Trump could never have pulled off. I mean, Trump, um, you know. He, he certainly can change positions and stuff, but um, but um, Boris is a pretty wily character, and he is, as you think, he's clearly a relic of the Trump era. But in a sense, he you know he has had more of a career, more substance as a politician, um, and seemingly is a, a sort of less crazed than Trump, less maniacal about I mean, himself, even you know. I mean, he's quite self-confident and quite concerned about himself. But I don't think we see in Johnson the, quite the megalomania that we see in uh, Trump. But we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Well, but recently, uh, one of his closest aides, Dominic Cummings, has gone public and been dishing dirt on him and saying he's totally unqualified to be a prime minister. Yes, yes, I read that. Uh question is how, to, how seriously to take that. Um, Cummings himself is a character who um, hasn't made that many friends and isn't necessarily the most reliable person. And um, it, it's a little too soon to say how, how the sharp criticisms by Cummings of Johnson will play out. I mean, the kinds of things that um, Cummings accused uh, Johnson of are not the kinds of things that would um, certainly end a career in the United States. I mean, they, and they, they, it's, we don't know yet whether they're going to resonate with British public opinion. I, I think 
probably a lot less than uh, Governor Cummings hoped. So have the, the First Lady and Joe Biden met with the Queen? I'm not sure of their itinerary. Did they meet earlier? I think they were meeting for tea this afternoon. So, this afternoon. Um, well, well, no, unless the queen, I was t- what a deal. Yeah, right. Actually, maybe that's not till Sunday. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, I may have that wrong because they're in Cornwall now. They can't get to tea right away, and uh, they. Um, I think they're going to have a viewing of the guard or whatever, and then tea. So, I think that may be delayed until Sunday. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is in more fact, relaxed. one of the hotels there in St. Ives apparently had to shut down because of COVID. So, and of course, <laughs> the, <that> true. <laughs> yeah, but one of, but of course, the big announcement was that uh, President Biden's announced that he's going to give a half a billion doses of uh, of the Pfizer vaccine to poorer countries, and I guess to some yes. extent, he's probably doing that ahead of the G7 to have them step up as well. So what do you expect to to happen at the full G7 starting tomorrow now that the bilateral talk between Biden and Boris Johnson are done with? Well, I believe that um, they've already drafted a communique of what they're going to conclude. Uh, And, you know, it will say lots of things. I'm sure it will... um, you know, reiterate the need to um, take on COVID and take on reopening economies and the Biden announcement about the vaccines uh, that he's uh, going to be providing or the United States will be providing to poorer countries will, you know, be a, a, a prominent feature. Um, but the, the, the G7 doesn't do much these days, as I'm, I'm sure you know. I mean, in terms of the world economy, um, the this new organization, not that new now, about 20 years old or so, um, the G20 has taken on more of the role of guiding the economy. G7 tends to be more political, and in that sense, it fits with Biden's effort to, you know, restate, you know, America is back. We believe in multilateralism, and we want to, you know, structure our alliances around democracy and push democratic values. So I think we'll hear a lot about those issues. There was also, though, an interesting article in the the, the FT today uh, about something they called the Cornwall Consensus, which was uh, the article was by Gillian Tett, who I'm sure you read, about how there's going to be talk about the world economy and about globalization, but it's going to set a slightly different tone than previous discussions in that it's going to be a bit more wary of globalization. Uh, it's going to talk more about inclusion and inequality. It's going to talk more about resilience. People seem to be totally freaked out at how supply chains have been disrupted by COVID and how that relates to the dependence, the great over-dependence uh, by Western economies on uh, China for key supplies and equipment. Uh, so there, there will be a message sent about the economies and about globalization, which will be a little bit more hard-headed and realistic. Um, what, what that would mean in terms of actual policy, we, we don't know because the G7 doesn't, you know, they set these broad goals. Don't doesn't do mm-hmm. policy. They don't do policy. Sure. But one thing that it does suggest is that um, 
they're a little less, you know, completely committed to... You've been listening to Background Briefing on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for NPR News coming up in a couple of seconds.